Hope you're all doing well. Welcome, everyone. Great to have you here with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to find the book of Zechariah, which is right at the end of the Old Testament in your Bible, right near the, right near the back of the Old Testament, but probably about two-thirds of the way through the book itself. Today, as I think someone already mentioned, today, does anyone mention it? It's Palm Sunday today. Have we said that already? It's Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter Sunday. And if you don't know, maybe you're not, uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're not used to being in an environment like this. Palm Sunday is what Christians normally celebrate the week before Easter to remember uh, the story you can read about in some of the Gospels. I think all of the Gospels in Matthew 21, in John chapter 12, you read this story of how Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. Uh, a week before he was to later be crucified and then three days later to be resurrected. On Palm Sunday, he, he came into the city and he rode into the city sitting on a, a donkey and the crowds sung and rejoiced. They sang Hosanna, which means sometimes we'll sing that word still, still here, the word Hosanna, which means something along the lines of uh, God save now, save us Lord, or help us. And they sang Hosanna and waved palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. And those stories in the Gospels of what happened in Jesus' life, they were all predicted. The Old Testament, if you've ever really got any time to study and read it, is full of what we might call prophecies, where the Bible speaks about things that will happen, often things that happened in Jesus' life, and Zechariah chapter 9, which is written about four or 500 years before Jesus lived, uh, tells, uh, predicts what's going to happen. So we're going to read those, just one verse to you now from Zechariah 9, just verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're alive today. Next week we get to remember and celebrate your life, death, and your resurrection. And uh, the wonderful joy of that is, is that every, every day, every Sunday, every time we gather, every morning when we wake up, we get to celebrate the wonderful good news that you're alive, that you're a savior, that every day we can sing from our hearts, Hosanna, proclaiming that the saving one has come and that you've come for us. You've come because you want to know us, that you want to draw near to us. You want us to be your people, that you've chosen us before the foundation of the world to be loved by you for all time. And we just want to bring our lives, our hearts, all of everything that's going on in our day-to-day -day existence, we want to bring it all to you this morning and say, Jesus, would you have your way, have your will? Would you speak to us, bless us this morning in your words. Amen. Amen. There was a story, true story, of 
quite a famous one of about 300, 330 years BC. So after this story was written in Zechariah, but before the life of Jesus, of the Greek king, Alexander the Great, who, uh, who came to the throne after his father died when he was quite young and conquered uh, from where he was in Greece all the way around the Mediterranean through uh, Israel. He marched into Jerusalem right the way through into Egypt and then further east from that. He has a city named after him in Egypt, Alexandria. Not many of us. I'm sure none of us probably have any cities named after us. Anyone? City named after you? No. And he died at the age of only 33. So he achieved an awful lot. He changed the, what would have been the known world at the time from being a world of lots of dis, kind of disparate armies and peoples and tribes to suddenly Greek culture flooded that whole area and changed how they thought, how they acted, what their life was like. But he died only at the age of 33. And on his, on his deathbed, some of his generals, some of his leaders came to him and said, who's going to succeed you? He didn't have a son to take over. Who's going to follow you? And he just said to them, my throne will go to the strongest. And then that kicked off a, a decades-long battle between all these different generals fighting one another to see who would succeed Alexander the Great. And if you look through history, there are lots of kings, lots of rulers who have been called the great, you know, there was Peter the Great of Russia. There's been lots of Roman emperors who would have been called the great. There's a list on Wikipedia of all, all the leaders through history have been called the great. My favorite one is Rodri the Great from Gwynedd, which is in North Wales, uh, which is about the size of Flavorland. Uh, but he decided to call himself Rodri the Great. So there you go, well done him. But we don't tend to call leaders by that name anymore. If you look on this Wikipedia page, they, we stopped calling people so-and-so the Great probably about four or 500 years ago. We don't talk about Mark Rutter the Great, Joe Biden the Great. That's not the kind of language we use anymore. Because we don't want rulers that are strong and mighty and powerful anymore. Well, at least not in the Western world. In other parts of the world, they do still admire rulers like that. And there probably is something in our hearts that still does want a ruler who is mighty. But we tend to look for rulers that maybe they're kind, that they've got some humanity about them, that they're relatable, that we can kind of like them, that they seem, they seem like one of us. But when Jesus arrives, this pronouncement here that there's a king that's coming to them the command to them is quite different it says to them that they should rejoice greatly which is what happens on palm sunday they all wave their palm branches they welcome this king there's a sense of rejoicing that here it seems to be that this king that's going to come this jesus who's going to arrive is supposed to bring joy He's not supposed to come with either just mighty strength or just being a good man. It's he, actually, he will bring all of those things, but the response it's supposed to lead to is one of, of joy. And all of us in different ways, that's what we seek in our lives. 
We, we look for, for joy. We want happiness. We want satisfaction, contentment. We want to be happy. I went last, last Saturday, I went with one of my daughters to a, to a gig, to a concert, which sounds really cool, but it wasn't. It was, it was Louis Tomlinson, who used to be in One Direction, who uh, now tours by himself. But I thought it was my duty as a father to take my daughter to her first gig. So along I went, and it was me as AFAS Live. It was me and 6,000 teenage girls and me feeling very uncomfortable. So I brought myself a beer, I had my Heineken, and I was probably the only person there old enough to actually buy one, so I enjoyed that. But what you get at um, a concert like that is there's a sense in the air of almost religious fervor, that they are rejoicing greatly. You know, they're, they're, he did his concert and then he went off and everyone starts screaming for an encore. And like the pitch of their voices was, my ears are still ringing from the sound of it. But they were, there's just this overflowing of emotion and happiness. And it's not just because they were teenage girls. I've been to other concerts that are the same. I went many years ago to a Radiohead gig, which is slightly different from Louis Tomlinson. But there, people were in the same way, like perhaps you see people do on a Sunday morning. They had their, their arms in the air, people eyes closed, singing along to the songs with tears streaming down their faces. People go to those sort of things and they experience emotion. They, they rejoice, they find joy in seeing their idols, their heroes, their king has come to them. And all of us, we might not find joy at a Louis Tomlinson gig or a, even a Radiohead gig, but in all sorts of different ways, our hearts are seeking for, for that. That's why people go to those kind of things, because they're seeking something. And you might find it in, in being a parent that you think, I want to I find happiness in my parenting. And when it gets hard and difficult and your children are a pain, then you feel a sense of disappointment. You're not getting the happiness that you desired. You might look for contentment in your relationships. I just want to be in a relationship where I just feel known and understood. Or I can just feel at peace, contented, happy. And then when the relationship gets hard, when you begin to misunderstand one another, you miscommunicate, we can get frustrated because we're not getting the happiness that we think we deserve. It might be in your career or in your university, in your study, that you're seeking satisfaction. You want to hit, you want to get a particular grade. You want to pursue a particular career path. You want a particular status or a role. And when it doesn't happen, you don't quite know what to, what to do with yourself. And the, my argument today, what I want to put to you today, that our chief source of joy in this life of happiness, of contentment, why this verse says that we should rejoice greatly is that the main way you will find that joy in life that all of our hearts long for is in the presence of King Jesus. That's the chief source of joy in life. The English preacher Spurgeon said that his 
even his, the sound of his feet coming to us, his music to our ears, his very shadow is our delight. There's something in knowing Jesus, in being known by him, in knowing and experiencing his love. It's a joy that you won't find anywhere else in life. It's a, a happiness, a contentment, a, a satisfaction which is so deep and rich and full that you might spend the rest of your life chasing it in all sorts of different areas. And there, there's, there's always hints, glimpses of that joy and lots of other things. Of part of the wonderful grace of God that he gives us different experiences in life that do give us some kind of joy but all of them are just they're just sort of scattered sunbeams whereas the real heat of the sun is found only in Jesus that's where the true joy is found that's why here on a on a Sunday morning when we gather we we sing you might find that weird if you're not used to coming to churches. Why do Christians sing all the time? It's because that's, that's what your heart does. The same way you go to a Louis Tomlinson gig and, and everyone was singing around me because they're just expressing their joy. That's why we sing at church, because we just want to express our joy. It's why the longest book in the Bible is just a book of songs. The book of Psalms, that's just what it is. It's just song after song after song that our hearts can respond to the wonder of who God is. But you might be thinking that the God that you've experienced or the God you've been told about, the God that perhaps society tells you he is like, or maybe you've experienced in different settings, is you might think that God's, God's cold or God's angry. He's temperamental. He's judgmental. That's sometimes the perception that we have of God. And we can misunderstand it sometimes, but really, there's a, the writer A.W. Tozer, he wrote a chapter in one of his books that just said, God is easy to live with. <laughs> and he is. He's a happy God. And he's created us for happiness to be ultimately experienced in him. Another writer, John Piper, said that if Christ is gloomy or even calmly stoical, eternity will be a long, long sigh. <laughs> if Jesus is just a bit grumpy, if sometimes the pictures you see of Jesus, he just looks, yeah, that word stoical is sort of serious and as though he's contemplating, he's thinking really, really hard about what he wants for dinner, just kind of... Mm. He's not like that. Jesus was the happiest person that ever lived. And right now, he's alive in heaven, and he's still the happiest person that ever lived. And he takes his joy in us. He talks in Hebrews about how he took joy even in suffering for us. He's a God who loves us. And you might have another question. You might think, well, hold on a second. Isn't, what, about, what about suffering? Isn't, isn't joy, this language of joy, isn't that what Christians just use to sort of delude themselves, 
to sort of trick themselves, to kind of feed themselves a sort of a, a placebo, you know, like a fake drug to sort of get us through life. But the wonderful truth of this Bible, this book, is that God is with us. It doesn't mean that you become a Christian and all your sufferings, all your pain, all your, the struggles of life, they don't just evaporate, but God comes to be with us through every season that you have to walk through, every struggle or challenge you come across, he's with us. It says in John 15, verse 11, these things, this is Jesus speaking, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not like a, a hint or a glimmer, a partial, but full joy is what Jesus wants to bring to us. And I think that happens particularly in times of pain, times of difficulty. Maybe you are walking through a season which you do feel like you're struggling, that you're walking through suffering, through disappointment, through frustration, through regret, whatever it is. We have a God who draws particularly near talks in Psalms about how he draws near to the brokenhearted. even this book Zechariah it's written to the people of God in a time of immense suffering for them of immense challenge immense difficulty and yet it speaks to them that they can rejoice because the king is coming to them so how does this king how does this coming king, how does he bring joy? I've got a few pointers to help us here. First of all, he comes with his presence. It says in this passage, behold, your king is coming to you. You see, he's ours. He's your king, he's our king. All through the Old Testament, you can read of a God who's seeking out a people to call his own a people that he can know and love. He's a, a shepherd caring for his sheep. He's a father that you can come to with open arms for you. That's what God's like. Earlier on in Zechariah, it's a similar verse where Zechariah calls the people to rejoice. It says, behold, your king is coming to you, but then it finishes differently. It says, behold, your king is coming to you, and he will dwell in your midst. See, we have a God who, who really does want to be with us, to be here with his people. We don't find joy in a, in a concept as the gospel is as like a, a theme or an idea or a, a theological structure for us to understand. We can understand God but the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is himself. is a person that we can know, that we can relate to, that he knows us, that he knows you better than you even know yourself. He knows all your faults and failings, and yet still he chooses to love you. And he wants to draw near to you so that you can know and experience his presence. He's not a reclusive God. He's not a shy God. But in his presence, 
in the very presence of God, he brings joy, and a joy that begins to transform us. You may have been here last weekend when we had the pleasure of having some dear friends of ours, Terry and Wendy Virgo, with us. And Joe and I had the privilege of spending quite a lot of the weekend with them. And there were two themes that really struck out for us. Was one, how they talked about their life in the Spirit, of how they talked about the Holy Spirit and how they walked with him and enjoyed him, how they felt his presence. That really struck out to me. It was really remarkable about how they talked about it. And the second thing that really stood out was just their phenomenal energy. Terry's 82, Wendy, his wife, she's 75. And every time I turn around on Sunday morning, they were just talking to someone else, praying with someone else. I think they know more people in this church than I do now. Just phenomenal energy. And we were, we were talking about it, I think on the Sunday afternoon, maybe it was in the car when we were driving back from church. And Joe just said to me, maybe those two things are related. But maybe they, they had in that, that I mean, they had more energy than I did in these double my age. Maybe part of that phenomenal energy, remarkable kind of zeal for life comes from that they just learn how to walk with Jesus and just enjoy him and enjoy his presence. He brings us joy with his presence. And it says, goes on to say, behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous. God's righteous. This king that's coming to us, he's perfect. He doesn't have any flaw. You know, we sometimes say, you know, never meet your heroes. Because they, they tend to, we meet them and discover how human and flawed they are. But with Jesus, you meet him and discover that he's perfect. He's righteous. It's not a scary word. It's a good word. It means he's right before God. He's just. And the righteous one offers himself as a gift to make us righteous. He exchanges all our unrighteousness, all our sin and failings, and he offers his righteousness to us as a gift by his blood for us to enjoy. Number three, it goes on and says, righteous and having salvation is he. Literally, that means that he was righteous and saved. That this king that Zechariah is talking about, there's some sort of trial that he's walked through that he doesn't tell us what it is. There's some sort of victory he's experienced that he can now say he has salvation. That the crowd could sing when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, Hosanna. That this God, this saviour, this one who's come to save is here now. When I was with my daughter at this gig last week, you know, lots of people as they do were waving flags and banners and signs that they made. And this one girl standing about 20 meters away from us had a big sign that she was holding up that just said, you saved me. <laughs> Which is quite a remarkable claim to make. And maybe that was, in some way for her, maybe that was true. 
I don't know what experience she'd been through that would lead her to say to a pop star that she'd never met that you'd save me, but obviously his music meant a lot to her. But it's a funny thing to say, you saved me. In our world, we don't tend to think that we need saving, that we're very independent, we're self-sufficient. You know, we, maybe we want a God who might help us, who might give us some support, some assistance, you know, a God who can help us achieve our life goals, a God who can help us find the answer within, a God that can help us sort of bring out the hero inside ourselves, as the song goes. Well, I don't know about you, but I've looked for the hero inside myself and he's not home. I, I don't know where he's gone, he's not there. In the room where he's supposed to be, there's just a big pile of unopened mail. He's just not there. If you search for the hero within, for the answer within yourself, what you'll find is that our problems have much deeper roots than that. We don't need a God that's just gonna give us some assistance. It's just gonna help move us a little further on in life. That's gonna help just you know, boost our ego, or just make us feel good about ourselves. We need a God that's gonna come and deal with the sin and the brokenness in our life. We all do, we all do. So that teenage girl, as she holds up her banner saying, you saved me, we could perhaps look on thinking that perhaps she was just being immature, but maybe she knew something more than we did. And she was looking for the savior in a wrong place, but at least she recognized that she needed saving. But we all do. And he's come not just because he's saved, but to pour out his salvation on his people. He also comes as one who's humble. That's the next word it says, that he's humble. You see, Jesus wonderfully, Jesus, whatever you read about Jesus, he, he always appears to be what he really is. And we're not often like that. We often appear to be something other than we are. Even, you know, you, you might think, I'd quite like to be humble. And then you try to be humble. My experience, that doesn't go very well when you start trying to be humble. Because then you think, I've been pretty humble today. <laughs> yeah, feeling pretty good about that. I'm more humble than they are. Yeah. But with Jesus, there's no, there's no false humility. There's no pretense. There's no appearance that he puts on. He arrives truly humble. In a sense, Jesus, his humility is most fully shown in that this God of all creation who was there at the beginning of time, he stepped down to be one of us. He put on human flesh, the ultimate act of humility. He lived as one of us knew all the temptations that were common to all of us, knew pain and struggle, the, the reality of what it is to be human. He knows it. He, he understands you. <laughs> he knows the experiences you go through. He knows them, he's been there. He's wonderfully humble and he's peaceful. He's peaceful. He's humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, in the Bible and in their world at the time, to ride into a city on, the, on a donkey was, on one hand, an act of royalty. It was a, a kingly act, but it was also it was one of peace. You know, normally when a king, someone like Alexander the Great, if he conquers a city, he would ride in on a war horse. He would, he would show his power, his might. He'd ride in with his army with all his soldiers with him. But Jesus just sits on the foal of a donkey. There's just such peace that he's trying to demonstrate to us there. But at the same time, he's a king. Jesus is both strong and good. He's both meek and mighty. The Bible talks about gives us these two pictures of him in Revelation. It talks about him being both a lion and a lamb. That he's a God of all power and might, ruling over all of his creation. And yet he's chosen to know us and to love us and to lead us gently and kindly with his grace, with his peace, with his goodness. goes on to say in in verse 11 of Zechariah as for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit you see really what what Palm Sunday is pointing towards is, is Easter Sunday that we can all have joy and we really find it to its full because we know that we're we're prisoners who are now at liberty, that we've been, we've been set free. That Jesus, by the blood of his covenant, has set each one of us free. That's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, that Jesus died, that we might have life. That he rose again and defeated death. And my challenge to you today is really to, to let Jesus be your king. That's really the, the answer of, because you might be thinking, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, you know, I, I, I know Jesus. You know, I've, I've, I come to church, I've been trying to do the good Christian things, and yet I don't feel joy. Maybe that's where you're at today. My encouragement to you is just to press into Jesus, to let him be your king. To, to follow him, to let him lead you and guide you, to let him lead you into all sorts of different adventures in life. Let that affect you know, how you build your relationships, how you spend your money, what you do with your time. This is what, what Joe and I, we're not experts at it, we make all sorts of mistakes. But it's what we've tried to do with our life. Very simply, if Jesus tells us to do something, we try and do it. We don't tend to do it very well. <laughs> we make mistakes, we trip up, sometimes we try and go in our own direction, but he always graciously draws us back 
reminds us of what he's actually called us to, what he's given us grace for, and we try and follow him. And we've always found that in that, we've found joy. Just in being obedient to Jesus, just letting him be your king, the one that you follow with all of your life. Why don't we stand to our feet? I'm gonna pray for us and we'll take communion together. Jesus, we just wanna, we wanna thank you. We can celebrate on this Palm Sunday that we have a king that's, that has now come. That the words of Zechariah written hundreds of years before your life, they were having to look ahead, but we get to look back and we get to say our king's come. He's come to be with us. He's to come to dwell with us. And we just want to invite you, Holy Spirit, just to come and fill our lives again. We thank you, that's what you do, Holy Spirit, that you're a joy bringer. We just want to ask that you would just fill our hearts with joy again, just even as we sing. Let our hearts just sing out our gratefulness to God, our praise and adoration to him. We thank you. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, and we just pray that you would grow that fruit within each of us today. You'd help us to experience true happiness and contentment and satisfaction in you and in you alone.